Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Welcome to Basic Folk, a podcast where we have honest conversations with folk musicians on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. I'm your host, Cindy House. Thank you for joining us today. Mark Kiliansky of Golden Shoals had the unfortunate experience of coming of age in a time where mainstream rock was just terrible, like the late 90s, specifically 1999, was pretty bad. He was really getting into bands like Korn and Limp Bizkit, and his first guitar was a BC Rich Warlock, which is a heavy metal style guitar. Lucky for him, he had a cool guitar teacher that introduced him to bands like Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin. Around high school, he started getting into jazz pretty seriously. He actually ended up going to school for jazz at Berklee College of Music in Boston. All the while, Mark was harboring a secret love of roots music, which began after watching O Brother Were Art Thou. He started venturing out into the trad and folk scene in Boston, and through that met Amy Alvey at school. The two were in the same starting point in their experiment with roots music. Both eventually decided that their academic musical paths of jazz for Mark and classical for Amy were actually not what they wanted to pursue professionally. They formed their band in Boston and moved down to Asheville. The pair spent the majority of their time on the road. Actually, their first experience touring, sounds pretty cool, was a two-week walking tour in Massachusetts. Eventually, Amy and Mark settled on the band named Golden Shoals. They released their latest album, a self-titled record, in 2020, with, of course, big plans to be on the road playing live. The pandemic upended their touring with Amy in California for a bit and Mark in New Jersey. We talk about all of that as well as toxic masculinity, the legacy of black musicians and country and bluegrass and allyship. Mark is a pleasure to talk to. I love his sense of humor. I think I went on many side tirades uh, in this episode more so than I usually do just because it was so fun to talk to him. But hope you enjoy our conversation. We're going to take a listen to a song from Golden Shoals' latest album. This is Brood of Hate. And then we'll get to our conversation with Mark Kiliansky of Golden Shoals on Basic Folk. <laughs> Upon that hallowed hill 
Let's get into this, Mark. Thank you for being on the podcast. Glad to be here. You grew up in New Jersey. True. What was your exposure to music like, and how did your family treat music? So uh, my family was not musical in the sense that nobody played instruments, Um, but my parents both love music and listened to the radio a lot, mostly oldies and classic rock, and... I got interested in music when I was in sixth grade, kind of initially. I just started to really get into pop music, and then all of a sudden... What year was this? That would have been 1999-ish. A terrible, a terrible year for music. Did you ever see the VH1 behind the music for the year 1999? No, I didn't know they did that for years. You would probably love that. Well, I think it's like the only one because it was like dubbed the worst year in music. That was like (laughs) Woodstock 99 was a big part of that TV special. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. No, no. I mean, that's a great kind of segue because like at first I was really into like boy bands and stuff. Oh my God. But then as I started to go through puberty and kind of start to, you know, get angsty, then I like this switch flipped and I got really into new metal, those Mm. Woodstock 99 bands like Mm. Korn and Limp Bizkit. So, you know, for better or for worse, that music really resonated with me and just made me want to play guitar. I loved, I loved the heavy riffs and I wanted to make my own heavy riffs. Mm. So, um, yeah, I got a guitar for my 13th birthday, a red BC Rich Warlock. Yeah, you have to describe it if people don't know what that is. It's just very pointy. It's like a, it's like imagine a flying V guitar, but then with also, but more of an X. Yeah, it and looked, also jagged and pointy. It kind of looks like a giant X. Yeah, like a jagged X. Yeah, and that's what it sounds like too. How do you think learning on that kind of guitar early on impacted your playing um well like the first stuff i wrote was like power chord riffs like it was my third or fourth guitar lesson and my teacher showed me power chords and i just immediately sprung into action writing riffs so you know it was a lot of i don't know i feel like parents often when they're signing their kids up for guitar lessons think like uh, they should start on acoustic and then move to electric. But like, I think if a kid wants to play electric guitar, that's the sound they want to make. So that's what they should start on. And that's what I found very inspiring at the time. So it was really great starting point for me. Your guitar teacher started showing you some bands like uh, Black Sabbath maybe was the first one. And then it seemed like Led Zeppelin had a big impact on you. Yeah, Zeppelin was the first band that I was really into that because they have like, you know, they're really heavy hard rock, blues rock stuff, but then they also have acoustic stuff. So that was kind of my gateway into acoustic music where I really I really enjoyed what they had in the way of that. So that's 
that was a few years after I started playing. I was in high school and I got my first acoustic guitar and started messing around with that. Um, not to go on my own tangent again, but <laughs> I just really feel like we have we had very similar tastes around like in in that like angsty teen and I remember really loving the band Silverchair and their second record they had a couple of acoustic songs and I remember thinking mm. like ooh this is a different world and I just went back like over this past weekend and listened to some Silverchair and I was like mortified with like how dark <laughs> and heavy it was yeah, they had that song, Anna's Song, which was about his struggle with anorexia, which is, like, looking back, pretty cool thing to put out there. Like, musically, it's kind of weird, but right, thematically, it's kind of awesome. You're totally right, and that's the thing that I kept bringing up to my my girlfriend, who's also, like, what love, we're the same age, and she, like, loved uh, Silverchair's first record, and then I was like, yeah, mm-hmm. they, he has a song about anorexia, and she's like, what? Um, but Silverchair has this like weird dissonance in all of their songs that I remember when I was a kid, I remember like not liking it. And I definitely didn't like it when I listened again. Um, but man, it's funny to like go back. Like you're lucky that your guitar teacher got you into Led Zeppelin because you can't go back to Led Zeppelin and be like, oh, this is embarrassing. How humiliating. Yeah, right. <laughs> It's, it's an okay band to like, yeah. no matter what age you are. Yeah. So also, when you were in high school, you were getting into jazz, and it sounds like you were involved in like some really serious, serious study of jazz guitar, and you ended up going to Berkeley for it. Um, but mm-hmm. can you talk about like where that interest in jazz came from, and like, I guess like it just sounds like so so like studious and serious i guess like your your reflection on that and how you see the foundation of jazz impacting the musician you are today yeah so just i i just really loved playing guitar and i was really curious to learn as much as i could and jazz is such a complex style of music and you know learning to improvise is a whole thing and the language of it and the music theory element of it are just, there's so much to learn that I was drawn to it. And I was also, there was a class at my high school where we could play small group jazz every day. So the idea of playing music in school every day was pretty enticing. Mm. Um, and it didn't like affect you that it wasn't like power chords and metal anymore? I just had a good handle on the rock stuff, like, you know, playing solos and, you know, coming up with riffs or whatever. And uh, and jazz was just kind of this new, I really loved the sound of jazz chords and the kind of possibility of jazz improvisation, you know, being able to play like chorus after chorus of an improvised solo rather than having like your kind of little eight or 16 bar solo in the middle of a rock song Mm. was I really enjoyed that the movie oh brother where art thou I think was a big turning Mm. point for you it sparked your interest in roots music I feel like the combination of like the Led Zeppelin acoustic and blues stuff and oh brother where art thou really kind of like sealed the deal Um, what was it 
about the music that moved you at the time and how did you act on that? It was just kind of like it was really around the same time that I was listening to Led Zeppelin and enjoying their acoustic stuff. And then the music on O Brother Were At That was kind of like the more legit source of where Led Zeppelin was kind of getting their inspiration from, you know, at like pretty much everything that Led Zeppelin did was inspired by the Delta Blues or by like, you know, English folk music or early American country music and stuff like that. So it was like this going back to the source that um, is kind of like any any musician is always looking for like, where did this come from? Mm. Um, like a detective. So yeah, yeah, exactly. We're, mus- we're sonic detectives. <laughs> And, uh, but I didn't know anybody that played any bluegrass country, whatever. Uh, so it wasn't until I got to Berkeley and met musicians at Berkeley who were into these styles of folk music that I started really exploring it. Yeah. At Berkeley College of Music, you were there, like we mentioned earlier, to earn a degree in jazz composition, but the traditional Mm -hmm. and, uh, folk root scene in Boston it sounds like it really stole your heart. Yeah, it did. Because I, I always loved jamming and just, like, playing music wherever, whenever. And, uh, you know, playing playing folk music, it's acoustic. You know, you can go in the park, you can go up on the roof, whatever. You don't have to bring your amp or your drum set or whatever. And um, just just that element of fun and spontaneity really resonated with me and then you know started going to bluegrass festivals and it's like just stay up all night jamming and partying Mm. is the most fun thing ever can you talk a little bit more about um discovering the social aspect of music when when playing roots music versus what you were doing at berkeley with jazz yeah um i mean there's always kind of a commonality in the jam session I was really used to going to jazz jam sessions where you get together with a bunch of other people and somebody calls a tune. Um, and you know, there's a standard repertoire that most people know, and it's the same, the exact same thing. Um, so I was kind of familiar with this setup, like, you know, the Cantab in central square Mm -hmm. RIP is -hmm. where me and so many other people cut our teeth on bluegrass jamming. Um, so I would, I would go there a lot and, you know, just start off like playing with whoever was there, you know, really standard fiddle tunes, Big Mon, you know, whatever fiddle tunes, and then like meeting more and more people. Did you just mention the name of a fiddle tune? Yeah. Big Mon. Big Mon. Like Monongahela? It, uh, that's short for Monroe. Oh, okay. As in Bill Monroe. Oh, okay. Got it. The bluegrass mandolin player. Yeah, and I just blanked on other fiddle tune names. I trust that you know more. <laughs> big Sayota, Big Sandy River. For some reason, I can only think of two names with the word big in it. <laughs> yeah, well, you were kind of asking, like, what's the what was different about that as yeah. opposed to jazz or something? Um, yeah, and one of, the, one of the differences is that, like, at a jazz jam session, you've got, you usually bring along your real book, which is this big, thick book that has all the tunes, the standard tunes notated, that if you don't know the tune somebody calls, you can look at this book. 
Whereas at a bluegrass jam, um, no one knows anything. Ear. <laughs> yeah, nobody knows anything. <laughs> most most people don't know how to read music, probably. Um, but like you use your ear to figure out the tune, and the tunes are simpler, so it's mm-hmm. easier to use your ear. And uh, but you know, having like studied music formally and spent time reading music and reading out of books, like I I much prefer the experience of learning something by ear and maybe screwing it up a little bit when you're first learning it. But I don't know, to me, that's just like a more holistic experience. And that's not to like talk down at all about reading music or anybody who does read music because people learn and experience in their different ways. But for me, I really love not reading off a page and just like kind of, you know, observing what's around me. Leave room for the flaws. Totally. I listened to you and Amy on Get Up in the Cool podcast um, where you com- were comparing the old-time player Doc Boggs to metal music, which makes me want to know more about like what you where you see the similarities in those two styles, like when you made that connection and how did it change the way you see old-time uh, and metal? Cool. Uh, so specifically regarding Doc Boggs is his music. It's just tonally very dark. Like a lot of the songs that he does are in minor keys and are kind of like on the slower side. Like there's definitely like with the slow minor, like pentatonic riff oriented, mm-hmm. like his, you listen to Doc Boggs songs, especially Oh Death, which is one of his most famous tunes it's like you could easily just if you played it on an electric guitar with a lot of distortion on it it just automatically becomes a doom metal song you sound like someone who's done that yeah (laughs) i've i've done that from i would like to do it more um someday someday when i get my power trio together we'll do that kind of stuff. you and jake blunt that would be so dope jake is so metal yeah but then like, I mean, a lot of people compare old-time music to punk rock because it's, like, usually just three chords and it's super rhythmic and and kind of getting into the difference between old-time music and bluegrass music where bluegrass is kind of, like, soloist-oriented, technically virtuosic-oriented. Old-time music is more about just, like, playing a melody with a lot of rhythm. Mm-hmm. Um that kind of like more basic approach a lot of people compare to the approach to punk rock where it's kind of like it's about it's about your ethos and the vibe that you're putting out and you don't have to be like the most technically skilled musician like if you're playing it rhythmically good and with lots of passion then what you're doing is um you know worth listening to You have a pretty great sense of humor and you do a good job of working that into your music and even into your promo, like your uh, Kickstarter video for your last record was hilarious, by the way. (laughs) That was fun to make. How have you related to humor and comedy through your life and what 
was the process like of incorporating it into your music and public persona? I actually, a few years ago, I was talking to a friend and just telling, just for whatever reason, saying when I was a kid, like when I was like six or seven years old, I wanted to be a comedian or a magician. Like those were the two things that I thought I wanted to be. And my friend was like, well, you're both now because you're a music- <laughs> musician. And I was like, whoa, you're right. I I'm, I don't know. I mean, it's not anything that I really ever thought about. Like humor, humor is important in whatever art form. You know, you read a book or watch a movie and no matter how uh, like depressing or dark this piece of art might be somewhere, there's some kind of comic relief. And it's kind of weird in music. You're like, I think maybe you're alluding to something where in music you often find comedy, like there's you either got musical comedy or like music that is not very comedic, like music that is serious. It usually doesn't have any comedy in it, mm. I find. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, maybe the odd artist every once in a while will, like somebody like Tom Waits will have like very serious but also comedic music. Mm. But um, it's... Yeah, it's definitely something that I think balancing very serious subject matter with, you know, very light or fun subject matter or like, you know, your classic bluegrass formula where you have an incredibly sad song where somebody probably dies, but the music sounds happy and cheerful as can be. Um, It's it's a balancing act. Mm. And, you know, some of the best soloists especially in jazz, use comedy in their solos. You know, there's a thing in in jazz music where they'll often quote the melody of another tune, some different tune or Mm. some, you know, commonly known tune in the middle of, you know, you might be playing this Charlie Parker tune, but then you'll play like a little bit of the latest pop song in your solo. And (laughs) that kind of, that kind of reference thing, you know, I definitely got from jazz and enjoy taking that same approach Hmm. in folk music. You did an interview a bunch of years ago. It might have been before you started playing with Amy, with um, your buddy from Redline Roots, um, where you you said... Oh, yeah, Brian Carroll. Yeah, you said, I am a songwriter, and I now consider myself a, quote, singer after many years of (laughs) trying and failing. (laughs) Forgot all about that. Which made me want to know more about your relationship to your voice, like what that has been like and how did you learn to be confident in your singing? Mm. Yeah, it. I, I forgot that I ever said that, but it's true. Um, I started singing in high school. Um, a friend of mine started an acoustic duo because we were both like, we both played in a lot of rock bands um, my friend John Cusimano and we just like Ooh, wanted that's to a do good an last acoustic name. thing. Yeah, Cusimano it, and Kiliansk- very, Kiliansky. Very Jersey. <laughs> yeah, same last name as Tony Soprano's next door neighbor. Oh man, epic! So yeah, he was like we always played music together and always in rock bands, but we wanted to do an acoustic thing, so we started doing that. And you know, like he sang the lead most of the time, actually all the time. Um, but like, so I had to sing the harmonies and I was good at like coming up with harmonies because 
I had figured them out on guitar and I knew how to construct harmonies. Uh, but the tone of my voice, um, took a long time. Like I was, I don't know. I didn't grow up singing. Like I don't have a naturally great sounding voice. So I joined concert choir in school because it was another opportunity to have a class where I got to make music. Um, and I learned like a little bit of very basic technique there and just singing every day. Uh, my voice got stronger, but even still through college, like my, my sound and my pitch really still needed a lot of work. Eventually I just took some vocal lessons from different friends. Um, took one lesson from George Clements from, uh, the Lonely Heartstring Band, mm -hmm. and another from my friend Darry Matilski, who's an awesome singer, and um, she's kind of like done some electronic music stuff in New York City, and just, yeah, learning how to actually, you know, it's an instrument just like any other instrument. Like, people don't always think of it that way because anybody can sing, and a lot, oftentimes people who are good singers are kind of naturally good, but you got to learn mm -hmm. if, if you're not naturally talented like me, you got to learn how to, you know, how to breathe mm. and how to, mm -hmm. you know, hold yourself and be relaxed, but also engaged physically. And, uh, yeah, I'm still, still always trying, trying hard to get better, but you listen, you listen to me now and you listen to me five, 10, 15 years ago, you will notice a difference for sure. The first time that you and I, we haven't met in person, but the first time we met is um, you were doing a live stream for Club Passim. And yeah. I was running the stream and I noticed in the chat that Betsy Siggins was there and she said, yeah. my nephew, yep. which I was like, I want to hear more about this. Jeez. So Betsy, if people don't know, Betsy Siggins has spent most all of her life around this kind of music that we've been talking about, like she was at yep. Club 47, like almost from from the get go running the club and then was the executive director of Club Passim for many years um, and has just been this like New England folk living legend. So how was being related to Betsy? How has that enriched your musical experience? Yeah, it's it's kind of funny because like I remember growing up and we would visit, I'm related to Bessie through her partner, Hugh, uh, who's my dad's uncle. And, um, we would go up and visit them. And when I was a kid, like every once in a while, they would take us to club Passim. And I was always, as a child, I was like, this place is weird and it smells funny. <laughs> it still is. And it still does. <laughs> and, uh, but then later in high school, we went to see this great Celtic guitar player there, John Redborn, I think was his name. And like, that was one of the first live music experiences where I was like mesmerized. Wow. Um, so yeah. And that's, you know, that's cause Betsy was involved there and took us down there to see him. And then when I really started getting into bluegrass, she got me uh, a Doc Watson CD and always kind of has, you know, shown me music that she thinks that I should get into because she's been around it and she knows what she's talking about. 
And yeah, she, you know, she's always like giving my CD out to somebody or somebody <laughs> else and, uh, you know, kind of helping, helping push us along and been supportive of me throughout like whatever folk project I'm doing. She always is supportive, which is really awesome. And uh, so that's pretty cool. She's always steered me well. She was the first person who told me to stop swearing on Facebook, <laughs> which, which was good advice. I mean, I think my mom told me that, but I didn't listen to her. But when Betsy told me, I was like, okay, I'm going to mostly stop swearing <laughs> on Facebook. Probably, There's the probably get quote. taken a little more seriously. Betsy was the first person who told me to stop swearing on Facebook. Yeah. That's good. When you finally made the leap into playing, and this might be fast forwarding a little bit, um, you finally made the leap into playing bluegrass, country, old time acoustic music. Was it hard to give up jazz and how do you work to stay connected to that part of you it really wasn't hard because i my degree was jazz composition and i spent so much time working on that that i kind of got burnt out when i graduated it was just kind of natural for me to start gigging as a bluegrass musician um at the time i played with a guy named dave delaney we called ourselves the whiskey boys and so we were we were just both intent on gigging as much as possible. I really liked that style of playing and touring. So it was pretty easy. And as far as my connection to jazz, I don't know. I don't I don't think I miss it. Like I still get to improvise and I kind of enjoy also having the opportunity to write songs. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I I don't see myself I would never see myself really as a jazz songwriter and the jazz world is like something that's not that interesting to me, mm. I guess. It's such academic music, which is not really what I've been interested in. Mm. I guess. Bluegrass just like the simplicity and the accessibility of folk music is what kind of draws me to that. Um but that being said, I mean, jazz, early jazz is folk music. And in whatever style of American folk music that you play, there's some element of jazz in there. So like, you know, we as bluegrass and old time players, Amy and I are also really love Western swing music. And so some of our tunes have more of that Western swing vibe and kind of pull out some of my jazz chops on that that must be fun it's all it's all connected it's all the same when it comes down to it so yeah it's just like how much a how much of the jazz sauce are you going to use a little <laughs> bit more on this song a little bit less on that song is it amy alvey yes you met amy at berkeley and it seems like you became friends because you were both just starting off at like the same time in your playing with roots music what was it like to have a friend like that to learn this type of like socially centered music it was cool i mean it's kind of interesting because we were we were in the same place and i think we identified with each other in that um we didn't become really good friends off the bat it was it was like more like kind of casual acquaintance we would see each other at this that and the other jam session but, you know, over time, we got to know each other, and it was really when we became roommates, um, 
I wanted to live in a music house. And so I was thinking of people who would be interested in being roommates. And Amy, Amy was actually the first one that came to mind. Yeah, because we always kind of related to each other. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, living in the same house, we would naturally just jam together pretty often. And then as we were each in different bands and those bands both kind of like, you know, crumbled at the same time. Mm. Since we had been jamming, we were like, let's just start playing some gigs. And we just played gigs together from time to time and started booking tours. We went on the Massachusetts walking tour was one of our first gigs. Yeah. Can you talk what that was about? That sounds really cool. Yeah. So that was Mark Mandeville and Rayanne Richards. I met them on the radio on WICN in Worcester when I was doing something else with the Whiskey Boys at that time. And they were talking about the walking tour. I told them I thought it was really cool. And they ended up asking me to do it. And what it is, is it's a tour that they've been doing every year for 10 years now. Um, Last year was going to be the 11th year, but it was the pandemic. So Mm. it didn't happen. They hike for like two or three weeks and play concerts in every town that they walk through. And the routes are based on trails, some kind of trail system. And they really highlight all these different like small trails around the state that people really wouldn't know about otherwise, probably. Um, So we camp most nights. Um, We're carrying all of our gear with us, our camping gear, our instruments. We kind of bring the second string beater instruments, not our nice instruments. Mm, Right. (laughs) The, the B team. Um, nothing, nothing. <laughs> yeah, nothing terrible has ever happened, but you don't really want to have your good instruments out there in the rain and the sun and everything. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was it was about that time Amy and I started playing together that Mark and Rayan asked me to come on the tour that year, and I was never like that outdoorsy, but I really wanted to get into it. Mm. Um, and Amy was, you know, was pretty pretty sturdy person. She's a rock climber. Um, I knew that she'd be into it too. (laughs) And we ended up doing it for like five or six years with them, um, like once a year, every June. So that was your first tour or one of your first tours. How did doing something like that and having that kind of experience set the stage for maybe how you wanted your future tours to look like? Well, what what I could say is that like doing something like that you learn whether or not you're able to like get through a hardship together. Not that it's like the hardest thing. And of course it's a self-imposed hardship, but you know, walking eight to 13 miles a day, carrying all your stuff and playing a show at night. Like if you're not tough at all, (laughs) you're gonna, you're gonna break down. So it's, it was a great bonding experience after doing the walking tour I think it kind of set the stage for us to be ready to do whatever it takes Hmm. to make it work. Um, I've read a quote about you guys first playing together, and I didn't write it down, but it was something like, we sucked together at this music for like at first, like we, you know, it was like somebody that you could like suck with for a while and someone who you could grow into the music with. And Amy is classically trained and you're, um, a jazz guitarist coming to this to this music. How like did that 
factor into Golden Shoals sound um, or how would it factor into like how you would learn this type of music together? Yeah, since it's like technically, you know, simpler music, like, you know, classical music and jazz music are very like technique and complicated music and like it's easy to think that playing bluegrass or old time or whatever would be easy at that point, but it's actually not like you really have to, the rhythm is so different and the roles of the instruments are so different. Like playing jazz, you have a drummer and a bassist and they're the rhythm section and they're keeping the time. But in a string band, the guitar player is really the rhythm section especially in a fiddle and guitar duo um, with no bass or anything. I'm the whole rhythm section. So you you learn the weaknesses in your own rhythm and timing, mm. and you have to iron that out, and you have to get the accents on the beats right because um, it really is – it's kind of like speaking a different language, you know, and like you can you can speak French, and it's similar to Spanish, but – you're not going to sound like a Spanish speaker until you spend a lot of time and do a lot of work to kind of get into the nuances mm. of that other language. And uh, yeah, I think it's the same with the music. You recently changed your band name. Um, was it 2019? It was the very beginning of, it was January 1st, 2020. Oh, January 1st. It was our official change. Awesome. Yeah. Golden Shoals. Just in time Just in time for the pandemic. Yeah, good job. Uh, which I think Golden Shoals is a great band name. And you put out Thank you. your self-titled album in 2020. How does it feel to play and record under the name Golden Shoals? feels good. Our old name, I don't really want to say it because it's dead. Don't have to. Um, it was... It was kind of cute and kitschy, and there's definitely, like, part of us and what we do that's, like, cute and funny, but that's not all we do, mm -hmm. you know? We we try to present an array of emotions and feelings to an audience. Um, and Golden Shoals, I think, on like, there's many reasons why it's a better choice, but yeah, so reason one is that it kind of like allows us to define what Golden Shoals sounds like. Whereas our old band name, it was very much like, sounds like old time party music, mm -hmm. cute, fun duo. Um, so the new, the new name kind of opens that up. And also like kind of the reason we had to change our name was because that our old name was similar to many other bands' names. And, and other, like, events and just, like, places that, you know, brand brand confusion was getting worse and worse. The name of the band was The Smiths. I'm yeah, just kidding. Exactly. That, <laughs> <laughs> I should I should just say it. The old band name was Hoot and Holler. So there you go. It's catchy and it's fun, but there's a million other Hoot and Hollers out there. And uh, so... You know, we had to think of a name that was unique and wasn't stupid and thought we had a name that nobody could make jokes about, but there's no such thing as a name that yeah. nobody can make jokes about. We found out yeah. after we changed our name. <laughs> um, but yeah, and you know, so we did the whole thing. We looked 
scoured the internet like no no band we could find anywhere that was anything like Golden Shoals. Really like nothing I could find on the internet that was called Golden Shoals or anything like it. Besides like some study of climate change impact on the shoreline of California. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, but that was really hard to find. So <laughs> I think we're safe. Hey, everybody, it's Cindy from Basic Folk. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp assesses your needs and matches you with your own licensed professional therapists. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. Very convenient. You start communicating in under 48 hours. Professional counseling done securely online. It is more affordable than traditional offline counseling. Financial aid is available. Licensed professional counselors specialize in depression, anxiety, relationships, family conflicts, LGBT plus matters, grief, self-esteem, Anything that you share is confidential, and you can start living a happier life today by getting 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com songwriter. You can join over a million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com songwriter. Bye. I want to talk about a couple of these songs on the self-titled record. Um, on Love from Across the Border, you are reflecting on toxic masculinity and how it's affected your relationships. What has been your experience with the realization of toxic masculinity and how you've been impacted by it? Yeah, well, it's just like, I mean, I think most people in my life have always considered me a nice guy. Um but it kind of wasn't until I was an adult and like friends, Amy being one of them being like, I would say something and they'd be like, don't, don't say that. <laughs> like, never say that to me again. And, you know, it's kind of the whole, you go through the whole thing where the first reaction is like, oh, you just can't take a joke. What's your problem? And then, but, you know, I had to, as somebody who no matter what has always tried to be empathetic, like be like, oh, okay, I offended this person. Like, what was it that I said that bothered them? And just, you know, reflecting on things, I realized that, you know, I made of sexist jokes were something that I would make as a dude and uh, kind of a normal thing to do. But just realizing that, like, it's actually a mean thing. These are mean things to say. Mm. And, you know, like also the way treating people in relationships, like I can say from my experience, if I didn't kind of reevaluate the way I was treating people or thinking about people that I would just these like sexist and racist ideas of who people are and what people are like they're kind of ingrained mm. automatically as a white man through whatever like TV friends family you learn this stuff all kinds of places and um you know, just being able, being encouraged to analyze that has been good for me as a person and has been good for the people around me. Mm. So I can not be an asshole, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I do. And you've said 
that same process needs to happen in the realm of race and class for every white person and every middle class or wealthier person. And then also in listening to you talk about your experience with toxic masculinity and coming to that realization, I really feel like in order for that to happen, people need to be ready to deal with a lot of their own shame Um, and wondering like where you are with shame and your own shame these days. I um, definitely, you know, every once in a while I, I look back at something that I said or did and, um, you know, feel that like, oh my God, like, I can't believe I said that sexist thing to that person or like that racist thing to that person or like, I don't know, I'm, I think I'm kind of lucky. I'm, I'm just like, I think I'm naturally have been able to forgive myself. Mm. Like there's kind of like when you realize you've been mean to somebody, you have that shame and then you have to deal with it. And luckily, just for whatever reason, I've just been able to tell myself like, okay, you know, like you did that, but just like moving forward, if you can refrain from doing that and try to like keep other people from doing that, then you're moving forward and you're doing better. And that's what's important. You can't dwell on the shitty things you've done in your past. If you, if you know, if you did something wrong to somebody that needs to be addressed, then do that. But you can't just like wallow in your own self-pity for having been a jerk at some point. Sorry to stick on this. Like these last few questions are, are like pretty heavy questions, but like on the topic of sexism and like working not only to change your own behavior, but trying to be a good ally. Like if you see something that is sexist, that another man is doing, like, do you step in? Like, when you and Amy are on tour, like, especially in recent years, have you noticed that people treat you differently? And then how do you react? Yeah, it's tough. Um, On one hand, a lot of the people that we choose to associate with are pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Um, But then on the other hand, yeah, you just, like, I mean, we're kind of lucky in that we haven't experienced that much of that kind of thing, but every once in a while there's like the odd comment from an older male on Facebook, on our Facebook page. Mm-hmm. And like, I mean, mostly it's just like in in that regard to like how Amy and I work together and move together throughout the world. It's like, I just, I mean, generally I just like defer to her first. Like, first of all, I'll try to like interrupt if I think somebody is like being inappropriate and just like guide this conversation elsewhere and then like figure out how Amy wants to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, it's in a situation like that, it's her feelings that are what's most important. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like a, like a hardcore, like straight up calling somebody out uh, is something that I haven't really done. Every once in a while, I'll just, you know, have to say like that's kind of a sexist thing you're saying Mm -hmm. and then that kind of like I don't know and then usually change the subject right the calling out is hard one time somebody I was doing a piece on um the band Beirut and I was calling Mm -hmm. them like a gypsy folk inspired band um and somebody emailed me and said you know gypsy is like 
is an offensive term and I'm not telling you, I'm only telling you to educate you. And I always remembered that of being like, oh, I feel ashamed. I feel that hot knife of shame, but also I'm like, oh, they're not like mad at me. They're just, they, I just didn't know. Yeah, that's a good kind of uh, way to approach it. Not adversarial, but like as a friend, like, hey, I'm your friend and you're kind of being a jerk. So let me tell you how to not be a jerk. Let's, yeah. But every situation is different and always. And we're still going to fuck you know, it up. <laughs> I could always, yeah, I could always do better and I always should do better. And I just need to be reminded of that every once in a while. You're, you're reminding me, I, I've been meaning to like, uh, there's kind of the local news source for my hometown mm-hmm. and they always, you know, they always use the word native, like Nutley native so-and-so mm-hmm. and scholarship and like, well, that's, I don't know. Uh, that's not really the right way yeah. to use the word native. Like you're kind of erasing native cultures, especially in a place like New Jersey where the na- natives are very invisible. Mm. So to call this white person native is not cool. And I've been meaning to talk to them about that. So I think I'll send them a message today. Laura Cortese was the one that pointed that out to me. Do you know her? Yeah. Yeah, I was writing. She was on the podcast pretty recently, and I was writing her um, intro, and I put California native, and she and she just told me exactly what you said, and I, it never occurred to me. What did you use instead of that word? California born. Yeah. Great. It's good to have some alternatives to present. Yeah. That always helps when when you want to correct someone. Here's yes. what you can do instead. Okay, let's talk about something fun to wrap this up. Cool. <laughs> Not that this isn't fun. Digging into our white it is, shame. It is fun. <laughs> the song Everybody's Singing, um, super fun. It celebrates and rolls eyes at the wacky people and places we encounter as touring folk musicians. That That's what you said about the song Everybody's Singing, which makes me mm-hmm. think about like connecting with people and creating a community on tour, coming back to see old friends. That seems really important to you. What is it about that feeling of having a spread out community that really appeals to you? Uh, well, Ever since I started playing, like music has always been the foundation of my communities that I move throughout. And yeah, like I like I relate to friends I make playing music differently than I relate to my family or other friends who don't play music. It's I don't know. There's something I'm I'm not a religious person, but if I have any spirituality, then music is at the center of it. Hmm. Um so and like you know, these are people where, like, you might see each other once a year at a festival or something, but if we're going on tour, then we get to visit them and, you know, kind of connect a little bit more. And, you know, this person that we were, you know, drinking till 4 a.m. and playing fiddle tunes, you know, we're going to go see them in St. Paul, Minnesota when we're on tour and get to see where they live and, you know, what their life is like a little bit and get to know them a little better. And like people who play music are just like naturally fun and nice people in general, people that, you know, you can learn something from and like share a real experience with. Hmm. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that. It's a nice way to live. All right, Mark. 
before we go, let's do yep. the lightning round. Desert Island Band. That could be a good question. No, you you go. You ask the questions. Okay. I supply the answers. Here we go. First song you learned on the guitar. Uh, Rumble by Link Ray. Karaoke song. There's a lot, <laughs> but that's a um, first. I love karaoke. Uh, right now it's uh, Jack and Diane by John Cougar Mellencamp, except replacing most of the words with sucking on a chili dog. <laughs> Terrible. Okay, yeah. Uh, dogs or cats or something else? Dogs. What is your coffee order? Uh, black. Mmm. First. Yeah, dark, dark roast. Wow, double dark. Strong, strong, nothing in it. <laughs> First celebrity crush. Uh, Kimberly, the Pink Power Ranger. Oh man, did you know she made a record? She's a musician. No. Is it good? No. It's not good. <laughs> I interviewed her on College Radio. Cool. Just because she was the Pink Power Ranger. Well, if you ever talk to her again, okay, you can tell her to say hi. I will. Who is the nicest musician you've ever met? Uh, first thing that comes to mind is Dom Flemons. Mm. Um, the, the Carolina Chocolate Drops came to Berkeley and did a clinic, and I just like kind of sent him an email telling him how much I enjoyed it, and he like sent me this long response where it's just like, like he he told me that he really like appreciated something. I don't remember what he said exactly, but it was super nice. He's he's a real dude. That's awesome. He's a fucking amazing musician, and he's just a real person. First album you bought with your own money? I bought two at the same time. It was Blink One Eighty Two, Enema of the State, and Smash Mouth Astro Lounge. I don't know which is worse. Because those ones, they didn't have the parental advisory sticker, oh. neither of them. And all the other ones I wanted had the parental advisory sticker. Yikes. Aren't yeah. you glad you're past that stage of life? Um, yeah. What was your first concert? I don't really know. Like, I never went to any big concerts when I was in high school I, I was just like we just had shows at the VFW or whatever and that that would have been my first concert like hardcore shows uh yeah like punk shows yeah. and not a lot of moshing or anything but you know mostly punk bands Beatles or the Rolling Stones can I say neither yes <laughs> <laughs> I mean they're they're both good corn or limp biscuit ooh <laughs> Corn was my legit favorite. I would pick corn. But Limp Biscuit is more fun to look back on and laugh at. Yeah, Fred Durst is like pretty those, awful. Like you can't really laugh too much at corn because those lyrics are actually like yeah. really intense and painful. But uh but Limp Biscuit, Fred Durst's lyrics are just utter garbage. Did it all for the cookies? Just the broiness. Nookie? Yeah. Mm. Alright, I get that. Flying or invisibility? Oh, Shit. It's hard, huh? That's a hard one. I think, uh, yeah, so flying, because I think if I could be invisible, then I would be tempted to do some things that I probably shouldn't do, hmm. like probably stealing things mm -hmm. from Walmart or something, <laughs> um, which I don't think there's anything ethically wrong with that, but I don't know. Maybe just not. Anyway. I've heard that answer before that like 
I've got to choose flying because if I were invisible, I'd be tempted. Get into trouble, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, this is the last one. Where's the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Ooh. Um, I don't have a good answer for that. You've been so many places. I know, but they're all beautiful in their own way. What was the first thing that popped into your head? Uh, well, there was there was the first time I ever went camping in high school, and we climbed to the top of this mountain, and there was a lake there, and we didn't know that there was a lake. So when we got there, we were all hot and exhausted, and jumping in the lake was the most refreshing thing ever. And I don't know where that was. It was in New Jersey, somewhere near the Delaware Water Gap, probably. Mm, that does sound good. So New Jersey is my answer. <laughs> Beautiful New Jersey. Okay. We've got it all. That's all the lightning round questions I have for you today. Thank you so much cool. uh, for answering all my questions. Yeah, I appreciate the thoughtful questions. Yeah, it's been great. It's nice to talk to you. Basic Folk This Week was produced by John Nungesser. Alex Stanton of the band Townspeople composes our music. Basic Folk is on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. I'm your host, Cindy Howes. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. And if you enjoyed this, please share it with a friend. And all of the episodes of Basic Folk can be found anywhere you get podcasts on the American Songwriter website or at my website, cindyhouse.net. Okay, we'll talk to you next time. Bye.